All right, tough questions and tougher answers. I'm going to deal with three things tonight. I'm going to deal with marijuana use, I'm going to deal with abortion, and I'm going to deal with dinosaurs. Now, somebody pray for me. <laughs> so let's, let, let's pray. Father, we just thank you that your word, your amazing word, has the answer to the questions of life. And, and Lord, it, it's a guidebook for living. It touches on every area we could possibly have a need. It addresses the major issues of life, and it gives us a clear-cut guide on how to live. And I pray that, Lord, you will help us to rightly divide the word of truth tonight, to teach your word uh, uh, clearly, accurately, commonsensically, understandably. I thank you, Lord, for giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, and I pray that tonight... As your truth is shared, that people will be set free. That we will know the truth applied to life, and that truth will set us free in the areas of life we need it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Speak to my heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, I'm glad I'm not up there and I'm out here. (laughs) Now, you might wonder why I would deal with those three things. I'm dealing with stuff. You know, I was thinking on the way here. I was thinking how if I wanted to, I could spend the rest of Wednesday nights forever dealing with things that attack our culture, ideas and philosophies and false assumptions and deceptions, um, cultural gobbledygook. I could deal with it every Wednesday night for the rest, as long as I live, because there's always something coming in that that challenges the word of God, that is false at its premise, at its root, and that the Bible has an answer to. And how many areas we need to be set free by truth. So I chose these three because these are three things that have Uh, Well, of course, abortion has been with us for decades, dinosaurs forever. But let me tell you what I, I, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I chose first to deal with the pot issue for a couple of reasons. One, I was approached by a person. Now, don't look around. They were not here. (laughs) I can already see you thinking, oh, I wonder if it was so-and-so. They kind of look like a, No. But I was, just suffice it to say, I was approached by a person who insisted as a, as a quote, uh, uh, spirit-filled believer that there was nothing wrong with pot and that I could not show them in the Bible where anything wrong with, was wrong with pot and that pot relaxed them and made them feel mellowed out, helped relieve stress. Okay, then I began to read how marijuana use, pot usage has really made its way in a stronger way than ever, into the American lifestyle. Um, nine states, I think, so far have legalized pot for medical usage. And you're not going to tell me that everybody walking around with a pot card had a medical reason. They were able to get one of those cards so they could get it free. I'm not here to talk about the validity of medical usage of pot. I, there might be some value to it medically. There's, there's value to morphine medically. There's v- value to different opiates medically. I'm talking about the abuse. So here, here's the question that came. How can it be wrong to smoke pot since God gave us every seed-producing plant to do with as we see fit? Now I want to take the last four words of that question. As we See fit. And that's what I want to spring from because that question is very telling. As we see fit, that's where our society is. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And that is one of the signals and signs and marks of a culture in decline. When everybody begins to do what is right in their own eyes as they see fit and not as God says. So let me, let me answer it. It is true that God made the earth and all things therein for man. He did. But this is for man's 
proper use, not for his abuse. See, most of the blessings that God has given us, he, he, he gave to us to be enjoyed within a God-given context. Can I say that again? Most of the blessings God has given to us, he gave to us within a God-given context. Here is how I want you, here is the context I want you to enjoy this blessing in. And if you take it out of context, it becomes abuse. Let me give you an illustration. God gave us the grape. I ate some grapes today. Really good. And you know what? I took them in the right context. God gave us the grape for man's good and his enjoyment. But this does not mean it was right for Noah to plant a vineyard and drink of the wine and become drunk, which you can read about in Genesis 9, 20 to 21. It's amazing. He made it 120 years building the yacht, walking with God. He made it the whole time. I say yacht. I should have said ark. I'll tell you what, it was as good as a yacht in those days. But he spent 120 years, think about that, a century and 20 years building that ark. And he walked with God the whole time, preached to his generation. And then he made it the whole time that the ark was on the water. But then when all that was said and done, he went and blew it. And he got drunk. Now notice, he abused the grape. So the grapes were not given by God to do with as we see fit. And can I just add, God gave us poison ivy. You're going to smoke it? Let me call an ambulance first. I mean, it's, it's, it's really ludicrous, is it not? That just because it's there, we're supposed to smoke it or snort it or drink it or whatever we do with it. Just because it's there. That logic won't carry, carry very far. In the New Testament, I'll give you another example. Paul dealt with those that use a similar argument to justify fornication. Fornication is sex before marriage. It's sex in, in, in any context before marriage. Homosexuality heterosexual sex, of course, homosexuality is always wrong, but heterosexual sex was given by God to be enjoyed in a given context. Do you see that with me? And, and when you take it out of that context, then it's abuse of the gift. But there were, there were Corinthian church members who were saying, hey, um, as a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 6, 13 tells us that some of them were contending that as food is for the stomach, the body is for fornication. They had a hedonistic philosophy, though they were saved. In other words, as food is intended to be eaten and enjoyed by the stomach, the body is made to be used for every kind of sexual pleasure. I mean, why not? They were saying. Uh, just like when I get hungry, I eat food. So if I desire sex, I just go have sex. There's no difference. I don't see a difference. And therein they relayed their total lack of understanding of why God gave the gift. Paul responded, the body is not for fornication, but it's for the Lord. So again, he did not give us our body to do with as we see fit. So it is with all that God has made. There is a legitimate and proper usage and context for all of his blessings. Then there is distortion and there is misuse of what he has given. And, and when you stop to think about it, so much of the temptation the devil throws at you and me is a matter of the, the devil taking some God-given desire that's legitimate and tempting us to find an outlet that God has forbidden and is out of harmony with God's will. That's why when the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness, what did he say? Hey, Jesus, you're starving. You haven't eaten in 40 days and nights. Turn those stones into bread. What was he tempting him to do? Use his power as God in an abusive, self-serving way. So far as passages that would address the matter of marijuana, no, there is not a verse that says, thou shalt not smoke pot. You can look and you're not going to find it. But we do find the principle. We find a principle. And, and usually when the Bible doesn't give you an, an exact verse, it will give you the principle that answers your question. So here's the deal. The use of marijuana is a form of drunkenness or intoxication. 
And you can't tell me it's not, because if it didn't do something to you in an intoxication kind of way, why would you even fool with it? You're wanting the buzz. You're wanting the high. And it alters your mind. Therefore, passages that condemn drunkenness would also apply. Let's just grab one of them. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You could easily insert, be not high on pot. Because it's intoxicating. It's intoxicating. Do you know that the word drunk, it it simply means intoxicated. And if you look up intoxication in your dictionary, go to Webster's, wherever you want to go, any dictionary, and it will define intoxicated as referring to drink or a drug. It is not just relegated to alcohol. In Galatians 5.20, we're told, And the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And one of the works of the flesh that it names, it says idolatry, uh, and then it says sorcery. In the King James, it says witchcraft. In the New King James, it says sorcery. The word that we translate into sorcery or witchcraft is the Greek word pharmakia. And we get pharmacy. We get drug from that word, drugs, pharmakia. Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, drugs. So what he's really saying is the works of the flesh are these. Idolatry, pharmakia, which is drug abuse. So we could translate it this way. The works of the flesh are idolatry, hatred, contentions, drug abuse. Pharmakia, drug abuse. The word in this Galatians verse has to do with the abuse of drugs, which were often used by the sorcerer to bring others under his spell. My point is that this is a specific passage that condemns the abuse of intoxicating drugs. You read the book of Revelation, you know what it says about the people in the very end of time, right before Christ returns, who are locked in the tribulation period, and they are cursing God and blaspheming God. And you know what it says they refuse to do? They refuse to repent of their sorceries. They refuse to repent of their drug abuse. So the the people who are cursing God and blaspheming God and and are about to be judged for eternity and they are right there at the precipice of Christ's return, they they are locked into drug abuse. Now the text says that they that practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. I'm just quoting the Bible. Not inherit the kingdom of God. I I take that to mean this. If, If you're really heavily involved in drugs... Um, and I can include alcohol in that, which is a drug, but we're talking about pot right now, or other drugs, opiates. We're, we're in an opioid crisis in America. I mean, a major crisis. It has swept America. Amen. But a drug is a drug is a drug. Some worse than others, but all drugs. Now, if you're really involved in that, I take this to mean... You can't be partaking of the kingdom of God and drug use at the same time. You can't be partaking of the blessings of the kingdom of God. Spirit-filled life, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Um, Fruit-bearing that is spiritual, becoming more like Jesus. That's not going to be happening if you're involved in drug abuse. Many times a question regarding whether something is right can easily be answered by the old, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus do it? I'm going to ask you a question, honestly, tonight. Can you imagine Jesus smoking marijuana? Of course not. Or encouraging others to go ahead and take some stress off and light up a joint? No. What does he say to us? Be filled with the Spirit. So if you think Jesus could do that, you don't know anything about the Jesus of the Bible. Because Jesus would never tell you to do something that's damaging to you. Now, there's, there's lots of things I'm not touching on here. What it does to your lungs. Oh, it is so damaging to your lungs. What it does to your personality. What it does to your motivation in life. 
I, I've never known a heavy pot user who was motivated to do much of anything. They're just looking for their next joint. And they tend to be very passive and very laid back and very non-motivated and, and um, they don't have aspiration to do much of anything. It, it, ruin, it wrecks. It takes the keen edge off your personality. So what I want to say about pot tonight is simply this. Would Jesus do it? No. Would Jesus uh, suggest that we do it? Never. Would Jesus put his peace on you doing it? I don't believe so. Because it's a drug. Be not drunk with. Be not intoxicated with. Be not under the spell of anything. I don't like being under the influence of anything but the Holy Ghost. Now, every day I'm under the influence. I drive under the influence. I come to church under the influence. Matter of fact, when I get up in the morning, first thing I do is try to get under the influence. Amen. Amen. But, but the influence of the Holy Ghost and the, of the Word of God, I love it. I'm addicted to it. I'll tell you, i got to have my hit every day. I gotta have my fix every day. I'm hooked on it. So everybody say amen. amen. Now let's go next to abortion. What does the Bible say about abortion? A lot of people contend, and I've listened to the abortion, uh, proponents. They always say there's nothing in the Bible about abortion at all, and that's just nuts. That tells me they've never read their Bible. Now, I'm aware that when I go into this, there are people here tonight who likely have had an abortion. And I want to tell you, there's no condemnation for me. I'm not here to judge anybody, point a finger at anybody. God has forgiven me immense amounts of sin in my life. I'm a forgiven man. And I'm a man that has had to repent many, many times throughout life. I repent all the time. I I try to practice daily repentance. So um, I understand, and especially if you did it, when you weren't saved, and once you got saved, you began to feel guilt and condemnation and shame and regret and hurt. I want you to know Jesus wants to heal that. And he loves you tonight, and I love you tonight. I'm only here to clarify the issue from the pages of Scripture so that we as a church can be clear uh, on what the Bible says about abortion, the way God views abortion. Because the argument is so intense in our culture, it's very confusing, is it not? So let me answer this. What does the Bible say about abortion? Well, it's calculated that an unborn baby is killed every three minutes. I've already been teaching 15 minutes or so. There's already been five children aborted. That's more than 4,000 babies every day. Now, behind the smoke screen of high-sounding phrases like pro-choice are over 50 million dead babies killed by abortions over the last 40 to 50 years. Now, that's a generation. That's, can I just make it real practical? That's taxpayers who would have been contributing to Social Security, the strength of the, the nation, Many of them would have come up with um, solutions to massive problems. Great leaders, great thinkers, great uh, artists, great writers, incredible achievers. 50 million destinies have been wiped out. My Bible tells me Satan only comes to kill. And steal and destroy. Nowhere can I see God in this practice. But let me continue. People trying to defend or or sell abortions often talk about, they, they put phrases like this, terminating a pregnancy. Or how's this one? Removing a fetus or tissue. That sounds much cleaner than talking about killing an unborn baby. Amen? They decorate their argument for abortion with phrases like, reproductive rights. I've never understood what in the world that has to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with abortion. But reproductive rights, or a woman's right to choose, or women's health. When in fact, folks, let's be honest, can we be honest tonight, real straightforward honest? Abortion has nothing to do with reproductive rights. 
I mean, what, you can go have a baby anytime you want. Or a woman's right to choose. And certainly not their health, because in 99.8% of abortion cases, the, the woman's health is not in danger at all. So what does it have to do with a woman's health? Come on. Can we be honest tonight? Let's just apply some common sense and logic and rationality here. Here, Here's what it's really about. Whether or not you have the right to kill a viable human being simply because they haven't been born yet. They say that necessity is a mother invention. The mother of invention. No doubt the idea that abortions aren't killing a human life was invented to excuse the slaughter of unborn babies by abortion. Because that's, that's what, that's what those people do who want to change the meanings of words and attribute another phrase or another word to something. If they want to sanitize something or justify something, they change the verbiage you use to refer to it. That's always been done. So, what does the Bible say about abortion? Well, I'm going to tell you, it says a lot. Without question, God recognizes the unborn as a living child. Let's just go to the Bible. Let's just go to the Bible because Jesus said, thy word is truth. So let's just go to the Bible. Matthew 1.18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found what? With child. With what? Say it with me good and loud. With child. Of the Holy Ghost. Look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say she was found with fetus. Or it doesn't say that she simply had conceived. It says she was found with child. When the child was yet unborn. And we're talking about Jesus there. Now Luke chapter 1 verse 41 tells us. That when Elizabeth was pregnant. The unborn babe leaped in her womb at the salutation of Mary. Mary went to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth was further along in her pregnancy. And when Mary, who had just realized that she had conceived by the Holy Ghost, went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, when she said hello to Elizabeth, the babe, John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb, jumped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Whoa, that gives me Holy Ghost bumps, and I've read that a thousand times. That gives me Holy Ghost bumps. Now, words matter. I tell you that all the time. But this word babe, the babe, unborn babe, unborn, notice the Bible makes a point of saying unborn, the unborn babe, the word babe there is brephos. That's the Greek word, brephos. Now, that matters. Watch this. The same Greek word, brephos, is used for the newborn child, Jesus, in Luke 2.12. The angels appear to the shepherds. They say the shepherds. And this shall be a sign unto you. You will find the babe, brephos. What kind of babe, everybody? Born. You will find the born babe, brephos, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then we jump ahead four verses in Luke 2.16. The shepherds heard this and they went looking for him and they came with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe, Brephos, again, lying in a manger. So, so the babe, here again, over three times in a row, God has re- referred to a born babe as Brephos and then the unborn babe by the same word, Brephos. But it gets better in Luke 18, 15, when people were bringing their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. And we do this. We bless the children. We have baby dedications. When they were bringing the older children in Luke 18, 15 to Jesus, it says, and they were bringing even their babies, it's brephos, to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. And of course, he rebuked the disciples. But now, my point is this, over and over again, it, it, the, the Bible account begins with an unborn babe, an unborn child in Elizabeth's womb. I believe she was six months along. So you had the, the, the second trimester in Elizabeth. 
the second trimester, God refers to the unborn baby as brephos. Then once the baby is born, three times in a row, the baby is referred to as brephos, brephos, brephos. What is, what is the insinuation here? That God sees an unborn babe the same way he sees a born one. Let God be true and every man a liar. These abortion proponents that go out there and they say, well, it's just a massive tissue. It's just a fetus, not according to God. Not according to God. I'm just saying, look at the Bible. Not according to God. According to God, at the moment of conception, I'm about to prove it to you. At the moment of conception, God calls it, ordains it, and destines it. Are you ready? One of the great revelations about God's personal, intimate involvement in the formation of an unborn baby in the womb is found in Psalms 139, verse 13. David is being moved by the Holy Spirit. And boy, did he have a revelation. Medically, this was an incredible revelation. Medically, he said, For you formed my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. Everybody say with me, you formed me. You weaved me. Now, formed and weaved are two different words in the Hebrew, and they're very strong. Weave means an intricate involvement on the part of God. When a woman weaves a tapestry, it is an intricate thing that she does. It it is intricate. There's intricacy involved. There is heavy-duty attention and labor that goes into that tapestry. That's the word. It is intense. You weave. You you did a complex thing. No, No wonder David later said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made formed, weaved. And it says that God is involved in the formation and the weaving of that child in the womb. Um, He calls for the DNA. He calls for the genetics. He calls tall, short, brown hair, blonde. He's involved. In the weaving, the formation. Do you know God told Jeremiah the very same thing? He said in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you, there it is again. God is talking to Jeremiah. Now, the, the verse we just read, David was talking to God. But here God is talking to Jeremiah. And God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And then look what God says, before you were born, I sanctified you. Whoa. Everybody say before. Before when? Before he was born. So wait a minute. Isn't isn't God misinformed here? Why would God call a massive tissue? How would God ordain a meaningless, massive tissue? Mm -mm. He called a person. He ordained a person. He destined a person. That's why I say you're not the result of an evolutionary process. God custom designed you. You are valuable. God custom designed you to do what he's called you to do. He, he, uh, He appointed you and he anointed you. He anointed you and he appointed you. Whatever he anointed you and appointed you to do, He gave you all the equipment you need to do it when you were still in the womb. He made you. Good Lord, no wonder there's a massive, uh, just a a terrible um, spread of suicide amongst, gosh, it's gone down to kids. Kids committing suicide. Teenagers all over America committing suicide. Suicide rate is terrible. But guess what? If I'm told 
that I'm just the result of some cold, uncaring, apathetic, evolutionary process, and that I have no destiny and no ultimate meaning and, and no purpose whatsoever, why in the world would I care about ending my life? Or how would I feel excited about life? But I'm here to drive that thought out of you. You were not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. You're fearfully and wonderfully custom designed. And I want you to say with me, God don't make no junk. You need to look in the mirror and say, good job, God. Seriously. Good job, God. Well, I don't like certain things about myself. Oh, those are just marks of ownership. Those are just marks of ownership. I want you to think with me. The birth canal does not magically transform a non-human mass of fetal tissue into a viable human being. You're telling me that you're not a human being when you start your way down the birth canal and something in that birth canal is hocus-pocus and by magic and some wand is waved over you and you go from non-human to human on your way through the birth canal? Can somebody say stupid? Come on, come on. You know what it really is? Birth only changes a baby's living quarters. It's dining habits and it's air passageway. I'm going to read that. I'm going to say that again. Birth only changes a baby's living quarters. It's dining habits and it's air passageway. That's all birth does. Well, I guess a little heavier in the Bible. God says that he hates those who shed innocent blood. And there's no blood more innocent than a baby's. The only true innocent party in an abortion is the unborn infant. Choosing the route of an abortion gives the death penalty to an innocent baby. And God's word contends that you and I don't have the right to do that. Have you ever, I watch, I've told you this over and over, but I I watch forensic files. And, And I watch these real crime shows, not Somebody that, where somebody wrote a script where they really chase down real criminals for real crimes. And I, I like to watch the way it all goes down. And have you ever seen court cases where somebody kills a woman who is pregnant and they charge the dude with killing two people? And I go, wait a minute. You're charging him. I, I mean, I've seen that many times in these shows. Some guy will kill a woman. Usually it's a guy that does it, but not always. But somebody kills a woman who's pregnant. And and when they go to court, they charge this person with two murders, the mother and the unborn baby. And you go, wait a minute. How come that law hasn't caught up with the abortion law? A man named David Watts, who I dug up, writes this. Abortions kill. Something living is killed in every successful abortion. That's a biological fact, not a subjective moral judgment. Abortion kills something with life. Before the abortion, something is living. After the abortion, it is dead. Doesn't come from the Bible, this practice. It's contrary to what the Scriptures teach. And I've got to end there because of time. But I think that essentially settles it as far as God's word is concerned. I want you to walk out of here knowing that when you were still a twinkle in your daddy's eye, God called you, laid his hand on you, formed and fashioned you, custom designed you, and now he saved you. And now he wants that purpose that he designed you for to come to pass. Hallelujah. Boy, I could stay there, but I got to move on. Because now I got to deal with dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. When, when I was a kid, I was majoring into dinosaurs. Major, major. I had all kinds of little play dinosaurs. I knew them all. Brontosaurus, Ankylosaurus, Triceratops, Allosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Brachiosaurus. I had them all. And I had them fighting each other all the time. I was playing that way. My favorite was, was T-Rex. He was the baddest. 
But so let me talk to you about dinosaurs because when I was a little bitty kid, because I was really into dinosaurs and learning them, I was introduced to evolution via the dinosaur. Now, some believe the existence of dinosaurs poses a real problem for those that accept the Bible as the inspired word of God. But that's not so. It's actually an imaginary problem. Dinosaurs do not pose a problem to those of us that believe creation. I'm going to tell you, it poses a problem for evolutionists. Now, why would I deal with this? Because when our, let's just say our youth group right now, when they go off to college, if they're not already gone in their heart, partially at least from God and from the Bible, one of the big culprits is and always has been evolution. Evolution has sent more people to hell than probably any philosophy ever devised by the mind of man. And I dealt with evolution last week. If you weren't here, grab the CD. I know it was a little bit heavy and deep. But um, it has to be answered. And, and I want to just bring an answer about the dinosaurs because it's my way to weave, my, my, weave the Bible in to this whole thing of evolutionary teaching that tells us we evolved and we weren't made, The man is a result of evolution and not God, that all the life around us didn't come from God but came from evolution. So let's deal with the dinosaur. First, there is no doubt that dinosaurs existed. I know. I played with them. <laughs> the real question is this. Not did the dinosaurs exist. The question is when. Did the dinosaurs exist? There is the controversy. Now, Genesis 1, back to the Bible, tells us straight up that all life forms, including dinosaurs, were created by God. Do you know the Bible says God created dinosaurs? I'm going to show it to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I told you last week that if you can't get past the first four words, if you don't believe the first four words, the rest of the Bible is irrelevant to you. In the beginning, God. If you can't grasp that and receive that, give your Bible to somebody. You don't need your Bible because the rest of it's irrelevant to you. Because in the beginning, God, not evolution, God created. Then it says, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast. Everybody say beast of the earth each according to its kind, and it was so. Now, come on, dinosaurs would certainly be included in the phrases living creature and beast of the earth. Exodus 20, verse 11 reiterates, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and what? Read it with me. All that is in them. And what was in them? Dinosaurs was in it. Had to be. If you're going to go with Genesis. So, in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, including T-Rex. Now, if it says that God created everything in six days, then everything was created in six 24-hour periods. And I've never understood people's problem with that. Oh, you can't believe that God created everything in six. Hey, God could could have created all six days in five minutes if he'd wanted to. I don't understand the problem. You're talking about a creative God. But the Bible tells us he did it in six days. And please don't torture scripture on a torture rack and tell me this was six millenniums and all this other stuff. No, it was six days. Now, here is what we must conclude in light of the fact that God created man on the sixth day. Dinosaurs and men lived as contemporaries on the earth. They walked among us. Dinosaurs and men had to have lived at the same time. There is no other conclusion that can be drawn if one respects the verbally inspired word of God. You're either going to go with Genesis or you're going to go with evolution. Genesis insists that if God made it all in six days, then man was made on the sixth day. So if man was made on the sixth day, he saw the dinosaurs that were made before him. Now, those who accept 
the unproven theory, because it is unproven, theory of evolution, insists that dinosaurs existed 200 million years before man. But you know what? This won't square with Mark 10, verse 6, where Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So why do I say the 200 million years before man is when the dinosaurs existed won't square with Mark 10, verse 6? Because Jesus said that God made man on the sixth day, and that requires the dinosaurs were around him. Because Jesus, Jesus, your Savior, said God created the heavens and the earth. And he said there was a beginning of creation. And he said God did it. So you can't accept that he's your Savior and knew what he was talking about if you reject what he says about the beginning. Or even Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world... There's the Bible again telling us the world was created, not evolved. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So evolution claims that dinosaurs became extinct. Let's just, now follow me. Evolution, if you read the evolutionists, here's what they say. That dinosaurs became extinct 65 to 70 million years ago. And then they say man evolved only two to three million years ago. So they tell us no way dinosaurs walked amongst men. I'm just reading it to you. This requires that man was separated from the dinosaurs by approximately 65 million years of geologic time. And I say, really? Really? Well, let's go to the Bible. Does the Bible talk about dinosaurs? Everybody say with me, yes. I'm about to read you a description of one in the book of Job. Job 40, 15. He's about to describe a dinosaur he looked at. Are you ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. He says, look now at the behemoth. Now, I want you to read the next six words with me which I made along with you. God is talking to Job. And God is telling Job, I want you to look at the behemoth that you've seen, Job, and I made him along with you. Everybody say, that's right. I'm just reading the Bible. Okay. Now he's going to describe him. Watch this. He eats grass like an ox. Verse 16. See now, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in the stomach muscles. Look at verse 17. He moves his tail like a cedar tree. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. Verse 18. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. And again, this is God talking. He is the first. In other words, he's the largest, most massive creature I've made. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he, capital H, God, me, God saying me, only I who made him can bring near his sword. In other words, I'm the only one that can take him down. There is no man on earth that can take him down. Only I can take him down. Then he goes on. Sure, the mountains yield food for him. So, So this particular dinosaur he's describing is a vegetarian. Brontosaurus was vegetarian. Brachiosaurus was vegetarian. Stegosaurus was vegetarian. Let's go on. He lies under the lotus. Oh, oh, and all the beasts of the field play there. Where? In the mountains. All the beasts, and I think he's talking about dinosaurs, play in the mountains. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, but he's not disturbed. The, The raging river doesn't bother this monster. He's not disturbed. He's confident. 
Though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. (laughs) The Jordan can gush into his mouth and he's not moved. Though he takes it in his eyes or one pierces his nose with a snare. Now, what is this behemoth creature that God just described to Job? That he said, Job, you've seen it. Some have argued it's an elephant or a hippopotamus. Eh, big problem there. A hippo weighs four tons, and they reach maybe seven feet high. You do not want to encounter a hippo, by the way. Elephants are twice as tall, but you know what? A hippo or an elephant up against a brachiosaurus or a brontosaurus looks dwarfed. And remember, God said, what I'm talking about, this creature I'm talking about, is the greatest that I made. The brachiosaurus stood three and a half stories tall. Think of a three-story building. Uh, If a brachiosaurus was to walk into here, his head would still want to go past that ceiling. No elephant, no hippo, no. And they weighed over 90 tons. If you got stepped on one or stepped on by one, (laughs) bye-bye. Quick death. Now notice, Job says that the creature he's talking about moves his tail like a cedar. Now there's a problem if you're going to say it's an elephant or a hippo. Because that talks about a massive long tail. Did you ever see the tails of an elephant or a hippo? They're short and they're slim. They're, They're nondescript. This creature's tail swings like a cedar tree. Now I haven't even had time to go into the Leviathan that Job also mentions, which was an ocean-going aquatic dinosaur. Pteranodon was the flying dinosaur. So there were flying dinosaurs, there were aquatic dinosaurs, and there were land-dwelling dinosaurs. But Job describes the Leviathan. You can go on and read it yourself. Look it up. Now, you might say, but what about the fossils? Let me move along quickly. What about the fossils? Don't they prove that dinosaurs lived from 200 million to 65 million years ago? And they became extinct long before man ever came on the scene. That's what we're told in school. The truth is that science bears out the Bible is correct and evolution is wrong. Man and the dinosaurs lived at the same time. Now let me bring it close to home. In the Paluxy Riverbed near Glen Rose, Texas. Southwest of Fort Worth, I rode my motorcycle there a few weeks ago. Yes, I have a motorcycle. I have skinny angels all around me. Now, but but watch. In the Paluxy Riverbed near Glen Rose, southwest of Fort Worth, dinosaur tracks were discovered in the same stratum as human footprints. Uh-oh. In recent years, scientists working with bulldozers in the area have discovered even more dinosaur and human tracks. Dr. Roland T. Bird, paleontologist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York, went to Glen Rose to investigate this find. Dr. Bird later authored an article entitled Thunder in His Footsteps in which he discussed the Glen Rose fossil finds. Dr. Bird is not a creationist and he did not like the implications of his find. He told a woman named Miss Elsie McFall who was a resident in the area at that time that if he were to acknowledge the presence of man, of a man tracks, human tracks in Cretaceous strata, all the textbooks would have to be rewritten. Now stop. Now you say, well, what is Cretaceous or Cretaceous? I'm sure it's Cretaceous. It doesn't matter. Scientists say that the Cretaceous era was anywhere from 140 million to 65 million years ago. And that is when the greatest development and eventual extinction of dinosaurs supposedly took place. But wait a minute. He found human footprints from dinosaurs that were supposed to be from the Cretaceous period. But they can't be because human footsteps were right next to them. This is why Dr. Bird was so blown away. Because he's looking for or looking at human footprints alongside dinosaur prints at a a time far before man is ever supposed to have appeared. The only conclusion is man was walking next to a dinosaur. 
Nevertheless, Dr. Bird was honest enough to state concerning the tracks. I love these things. They say, yes, they apparently were real enough, real as rock could be. The strangest things of their kind I've ever seen. On the surface of each was splayed the near likeness of a human foot, perfect in every detail, end quote. The tracks were widely distributed. Strings of from 15 to 23 right-left tracks have been uncovered. Now, you, I know what you're thinking. What happened to the dinosaurs that made these tracks? Because man continued. What happened to the dinosaurs? Well, there's a lot of evidence, and this is what I believe personally, that the pre-flood world was very different from the post-flood world. Many creation scientists believe that the dinosaurs survived for a time after the flood, but because of the changing hostile conditions, eventually became extinct. Conclusion. Contrary to popular opinions, dinosaurs don't present a problem to creationists. They present a way bigger problem to evolutionists. As Pharaoh said in the movie, The Ten Commandments, so let it be written, so let it be done. Anyway, let's stand, can we? I think I've given you some food for thought, did I not? Amen. Amen. Um, And I sure don't claim claim to have all the answers, but I do want to give the other side. There's things I'm going to ask God as soon as I see him, unless I totally forget because I'm so lost in his glory. I don't care anymore. But let's lift our hands and let's bless the Lord who created all things. And he made you wonderfully and fearfully with a purpose and a design. Thank you, Lord. Father, we stand in awe of your word. We stand in awe of the mighty God who flung the stars into space and scooped out the oceans and formed man from the dust of the ground. He spoke light into existence, the birds, the mammals, the fishes of the sea, the thousands of different species. We praise you. And we acknowledge you as the creator God. Let's just worship him.